All right, so we're going to explore chapter 8 of uh, the Crazy Love book, uh, and this is titled Profile of the Obsessed. Now, if you're new here at Pathway, uh, or, or you're just, you know, um, you don't have a relationship with God yet, and you're kind of seeking this out, I know this seems like a creepy week to jump in with the Jesus Obsessed week, um, but there's something here for you, I promise. Um, but I do have a bit of a problem with the word obsessed. I had a, it took me a while to get over it this week as I was preparing. And I, I don't know about you, but when I think of the word obsessed, it doesn't tend to have positive connotations. Uh, I think, you know, legions of high-pitched, prepubescent girls chasing after Justin Bieber. Uh, I think of, you know, what would normally be rational, you know, post-pubescent girls lining up for the midnight showing of the Twilight film. I think of creepy ex-boyfriend types who sleep in their car outside the house and tattoo the lady's name on the inside of his eyelid so he can look at her when he's sleeping. It's creepy. Um, and I think of a guy who owns, you know, five gerbils and he names them Wells, Lang, Bulaga, Sherrod, and Sitton because he wants the Packers offensive line in a cage in his bedroom. That's creepy. And it's obsessive behavior. So we get creeped out by what we see as obsessive behavior. The definition of obsessive is to think about something unceasingly or persistently. We think of obsessed people that have taken it too far. They've, they've gone overboard. I can look at a guy who has, you know, shaved the jersey of the number of the Packers right guard into an unsuspecting gerbil as obsessive and ridiculous. But in this chapter of Crazy Love, we're being asked to examine the characteristics of someone who is obsessed with Jesus. Francis Chan provides a number of examples that, just like the profile of the lukewarm in chapter 4, help us to understand where we're at in our relationship with God. Now, taking the time to assess ourselves, to see if where we think we are at with God matches up to his actual expectations, is a good thing. And I would encourage you this week, as you're reading through, to really think and pray about the examples that are given in the book. But a few weeks back, we looked at the profile of the lukewarm believer, and if we are being honest... We found a lot of areas in our lives that resembled that of a lukewarm believer. We also narrowed down the root causes of those lacking behaviors as failures to either know God, trust God, or love God. And we're going we're to refresh ourselves in that because it's going to be important to what we talk about later on. So a failure to know God is to simply not understand Him, to not know His character. This leads to problems because when we don't know God or His character, we tend to simply think of God in a way that serves us best. For example, a lot of people who do not obey God's commands really dig on the phrase, God is love, because it speaks to the aspects of God that they agree with. This is true, of course, God is love. However, that is not his entire character. He is also clear in his condemnation of those that do not obey him, an aspect of his character that people tend to ignore. We also discussed the root cause of not trusting God. And throughout the Bible, there are examples when God says to not worry about this or don't be anxious about that or to turn things over to him and let him take care of it. Generally, we show lack of trust by simply not believing that God will do what he says he will do. We also show lack of trust in God by trusting in something else more, be it money, other people, you know, pick your poison. And finally, we discuss that sometimes the root of our lukewarm behavior is not loving God more than anything else. This most often is revealed in simply choosing to serve ourselves over God at any given time. The problem is that serving ourselves does not produce what God has promised in our lives. Only serving God will do that. Ultimately, if we don't know God, trust God, and love God more than anything else, our lives will not produce behavior and perspectives that match the examples that Francis Chan lays out in both chapter 4 
and this week in chapter 8. So as a practical exercise, we're going to look at one of these examples that Francis Chan gives us, characteristic of a person obsessed with Jesus. I want to see what we can learn about God through them. So here's, here's his assertion. It says, obsessed people, people that are obsessed with Jesus, love those who hate them and who can never love them back. The scripture that backs this is Luke, uh, starting in chapter 6, verse 27. It says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now think about this for a moment. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That's not right, is it? I mean, there was a story in the news this week about a, a judge in Alabama, and he beat his 16-year-old daughter with a belt for downloading illegal music from the Internet. With the full force, he reared back, and he continually whipped her in the legs and the lower body. I'd seen it all over the news, and the judge had put out a statement and said, you know, it, it wasn't as bad as it looked. So I thought, well, you know, maybe people are overacting. You know, you can't spank your kids anymore. So I thought, well, okay, I'll take a look. And that was a mistake. I made the mistake of watching that video. And I couldn't get past the first minute of it. Like it, it physically made me sick. And so I kind of had that guy in mind when I was reading through this section and tried to put myself in the position of someone having done that to one of my kids. I would want revenge. I would want justice. You know, we like to think that we agree with the golden rule and it's in the scripture as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. But in practice, we only adhere to this when we are being treated well. My oldest daughter, Emma, seems to have trouble with this concept. She thinks that um, the golden rule is a description of how people behave, not uh, a benchmark of how people should behave. We had an instance recently where my uh, youngest daughter, Layla, uh, smacked my oldest daughter, uh, who had just turned five. And uh, Emma smacked her back. And uh, so I tried to kind of lay out this principle of the golden rule. You know, you need to treat people how you want to be treated. And her misunderstanding was, it said, well, well, Layla hit me first. So that must be how she wants to be treated. So the retributive smack was totally acceptable. So, so she missed it. Just, just a little bit, she missed it. It's not right. But where's the justice in all of this? You know, if a guy, you know, makes off with my tunic, I don't have one. But if he took it, I'd like to tackle the punk and get it back. But Jesus says, be careful, Joe. <laughs> but Jesus says, let him have it. For one who takes away your goods, do not demand it back from him. If a man comes up and he, and he begs from me, I like to eyeball that guy. I think to myself, man, he's, he's looking pretty trim. The dog seems pretty healthy. I don't know where he's buying these bandanas at, but the dog seems well-dressed. I think to myself, what did he get the marker for the sign that he's created? You know, I'm, I'm judging him. I check to see if he's got cans. They got the huge backpack with cans. It's the biggest joke in the homeless ever, by the way. Everyone gives cans. No one gives can openers. You're contributing to that. Drop a can opener in the bucket, the big red thing. So, but, but I want to 
But I want to judge that, right? I want to look at him and see, well, you know, does this guy deserve what I'm going to hand out? Jesus says, give to everyone that begs from you. Why? I mean, isn't all this unfair? Unjust? From this section, we can learn a lot about God and his character. If we look at the two verses that follow the ones that we just read, we can learn more about God's relationship with us. Starting in verse 35, it says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as the Father is merciful. Do you see? We are to be merciful and good to others because God is merciful and good to us. Look back at the examples. It says, bless those who curse you. Think of how we treat God. Are we guilty of sometimes cursing God? Have you ever demanded that God account for his behavior to you? Have you ever blamed God when things didn't work out? It says, from one who takes your goods, do not demand it back. Have you ever stolen from God? I mean, can we steal from God? Sure. We can take his glory. We can try to steal his glory. Have we ever taken his gifts and used them to glorify ourselves instead of him? James chapter 1 says that every good and perfect gift comes from God. So think of what's good in your life. Are you using those things to glorify God or to glorify you? What else can we steal from God? His money. His time. We can steal from God. As we look at this direction from Jesus and how we treat our enemies and wonder about the fairness of it all, we have to understand that through our sin, we are enemies of God. The Bible is clear that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And I don't care what your past has been. There's not a person in this room, myself included, who can claim that his deeds or actions has made him righteous in God's eyes. By sin, we are enemies of God. But through this section, what do we know about God? He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He is merciful. Listen, I don't care who you are. That is some good news. Romans 5.10 tells us that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So we can come to understand more about God's mercy when we live out the human equivalent in our day-to-day lives. We are in effect getting a souped-up gold rule, which is to treat others the way that God, through His mercy, has treated you. Well, that's a golden rule with 20-inch rims and flames on the trunk. That's a tall order. But we are to do this so that others, as well as ourselves, may know God more through our actions. But wait, you say, it's, it seems like this still reeks of injustice. I mean, perhaps you're ready to grant that handling people with mercy in the same way God handles you it does seem fair. But shouldn't there ultimately be a punishment? I mean, people are being wronged here. They're being abused, stolen from, hated on. Our concern here stems from a failure to trust God. Sometimes we act as though we have a better sense of justice than God. We feel like God has a lot of stuff figured out, but things are going to run amok if this is the way that he's going to carry things out. Um, like God's the, the, the parent who lets their kid run down the aisle in the soup and knock the soup out and throw tantrums in the middle of the thing. He's, just, he's not handling it correctly. He's being too lenient. But we should know better. In his letter to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul is writing to kind of lay out what the behavior of someone that is truly following Christ will look like. In that chapter, Paul addresses this sense of justice and he says, Beloved to the church, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. I'm of the opinion that God is keeping this to himself because we do not have the heart or the stomach or the ability to carry out his wrath to the extent that it should be. It belongs to God and he will take care of it. But this puts us in a sticky spot, doesn't it? We feel like people should pay for the wrongdoings, be held accountable for their behavior. But if we follow the logic, that would put us in the same boat. There are to be consequences for our behavior. Now, lest we think that we're special, let me ask you a question. Is God consistent in how he deals with sin? Yeah. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the consequence is that our sin persists. And we end up with eternal separation from God. Now, if we mistrust God, or we don't understand him, this is a very dire situation that we found ourselves in. To put it plainly, we're screwed. That's where we're at. But this is probably a good time to remind ourselves of how we got to this point. In the beginning, we were created by God. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that we were created in the image and likeness of God. That's to mean that characteristics that are present with God are present with us. Things like rationality, morality, and personality. And be clear, you are not a giraffe, right? The giraffe does not have these attributes of God. The tree does not. The beaver does not. The fly does not. Okay? It's you. We are the image bearers of God. That's awesome. And to steal a phrase from Genesis, it was good. But then sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and we found ourselves separated from God. And we must understand that God is perfect. He is a holy God and he cannot tolerate sin. It's also clear that the punishment for sin is death. God is life. Sin is death. It's that simple. We must understand that God does not waver from this. He is consistent, He is fair, and He is just. But because of His love and His desire that we may live despite our sin, He sent His Son Jesus to earth. The wages for our sin is our death. But God sent Jesus to stand in for us that our sin could be paid by His death. He lived a perfect life, a life without sin. He was arrested on false charges and executed for a crime of which he was not guilty. All for us. He was ultimately crucified upon a Roman cross, as predicted in the book of Isaiah, a book written centuries before that method of execution was even invented. And as promised, three days later, he rose from the dead. Our situation then is not as dire as it once seemed. But we have to trust God. We are not qualified to say what is fair and what is not. We are not qualified to say what is just and what is not. Only God is. And we will defer judgment to Him. When we think back on our section of Scripture here, maybe we can look at it and we can see how it reflects how God treats us. And maybe we've come to understand that our concerns about justice are ill-placed since we are not qualified to say what is just and what is not. But even so... We find ourselves not following the precepts of the scripture. Perhaps they don't fit in with our political beliefs. This whole thing reeks of people getting what they don't deserve. Perhaps you feel like it's not on the same level as the do not kill and the do not commit adultery stuff. It's a love issue. In Matthew, Jesus sums up the law and the prophets as saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In 1 John 5, we are told, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Here's the thing. You and I aren't perfect. But God is. And we can either fight this life tooth and nail on our own and find ourselves on the wrong side of peace, on the wrong side of joy, always feeling like we're missing something and feeling the full weight of the decisions that we've made. Or we can pursue God with everything that we have. We can acknowledge that He is who He says He is. We can accept the gift of salvation that we've been offered through the death of His Son, Jesus. But part of that is to accept the fact that God commands us to be holy, to be set apart. We have to act differently. We have to think differently. We must love as God loves. We need to pursue God unceasingly, persistently, obsessively. Because that's how He's pursuing us. Let's pray.